2: on the trail, there's this phenomenon called trail magic where people basically like, I don't know. I mean, it's all different types of people, whether it's people that do this all the time or some sometimes it's a one-off. People will bring hikers food and drinks. The first time I ever heard of it was like someone saying, oh, you, I was just walking along a stream and there's a six pack of beer in the stream and a trail angel left it. And I was like, shit, I want to do the Appalachian Trail. I didn't even <laughs> like beer. But that just that idea sounded amazing to me and we got hooked up by so many people an amish family invited us into their house we stayed with a cult we stayed in an abandoned church we stayed in a crossfit gym um people would drive for hours to bring us meals and cigars and our kids favorite foods and cereals all because they wanted to support what we were doing and when i did the math at the end of it um when I took into account renting out our house and all the expenses, uh, the food, the hotels, it was $80 a day for our family to be on the trail, which is $10 a person a day, Wow! which is cheaper than living at home. You can't live at home with Wi-Fi for $10 a day. My name is Ben Crawford and I'm the best-selling author of 2,000 Miles Together and you are listening to the Tom Rowland Podcast.
1: visit com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all.
2: Ben, what's going on? How are you? Tom, it's nice to see your face
3: and hear your voice. Yeah. Well, man, I have a lot of questions. Uh, you are... Uh, I mean, I don't even know where to start. I'm a father of three. I've got a 23-year-old, a 21-year-old, and a 17-year-old. And... You know, I've done a lot of things outdoors with them, but I have not taken them on a 2,000-mile hike. And uh, with a family of three, I think that would be, or or four or five, a family of five, three kids, my wife, I think that would be challenging, amazing, scary, and all the other things that you could, all the other adjectives you could use to describe it. But you have uh, a family of eight, including yourself. And the youngest is two and you made it all the way to the end. So, man, I got a lot of questions, but let's, let's talk about it, man. Like how, how long has it been since you got off the trail? Yeah. So we hiked, uh,
2: the Appalachian trail, which for those of people that don't know, it's 2,189 miles. At least it was the year that we hiked it changes year to year. We did it in 2018 and it's crazy because, you know it spans like 3 seasons. I mean we started in winter, hiked through spring, ended in summer. So it's like a full, you know, it's a big chunk of our life. Uh 5 months, 9 days is what it took us. And yeah, we started in Georgia and on August 9th we ended on Mount Katahdin in Maine. Wow.
3: So, I mean, the first question and and I have read a good bit of your book and I've watched some of your videos, I would have liked to have done more research, but part of doing this research, I was like, man, I just have so many questions. I want to, I want to ask some questions. So, um, I guess the, the question that most people would have is, is why, why did you choose to do this? And why, why would you choose to, to take your entire family, um, including a two-year-old on the Appalachian trail? I love that question, but it's a very hard question to answer. I'm sure actually. it is <laughs> uh, because,
2: well, it's kind of funny. Um, first of all, just speaking of the Appalachian trail. Okay. And I, and you told me about your audience a little bit. So I feel like I have a little bit of an idea. A lot of these people that listen to your show are like discontent with life. They hear about a new adventure. They hear about a new challenge and they, they like it. Um, you know, they feel like there's more and, and that's how it is with me. And there's certain people that when they hear about the Appalachian trail, You can't, the second you know it exists, you can't think about not doing it. Like, just it instantly becomes not if, it's just when. And I'm that type of person. So I hear about these certain things, and it's just like, I can't get it out of my head. It's like, oh, that will take me to
3: a great place somehow. When was your first exposure to the Appalachian Trail?
2: Uh, My uh, uh, first or second year of marriage. 20 years ago. So I was 21 and we were on a bike trip, biking across the country, me and my wife and my one-year-old. And we stayed in this garage and there was these hikers sleeping on bales of hay. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know what backpacking was. I wasn't raised doing adventures or even camping. Uh, I think my dad had an REI membership was about as far as it got. (laughs) And And, uh, and he had been a logger in Alaska, so he wasn't, it wasn't adventure wasn't foreign to us, but we stayed up late in the night talking to these hikers. And it was like a 55 year old lady and a 60 year old lady. And they said, we're walking to Maine. And I was like, what, you can do that? Like, I didn't even, so long story short, we got hit by a car, I think the next day or two days later, uh, which ended our bike trip. Everyone was safe, but the bikes were wrecked. I got an insurance settlement and the first thing I bought was backpacks (laughs) with this insurance settlement, but that was 18 years ago. So it took a long time. It took 18 years for it to actually come to fruition. But to answer your question, why do we do with kids? So this seed was kind of born 18 years ago. And just over the years of parenting, um, I think a lot of the excuses that people have for why they don't do things with kids, I just found no longer really held water for me. Hmm. We we took our kids out. We did some pretty epic, like what I would consider shorter backpacking adventures, but at the time seemed really long. Like this, there was this 100 mile trail, 95 miles around Mount Rainier called the Wonderland. We did that. It, it changed our life. And we were like, oh, that's possible. Uh, we ran a few marathons with our kids. So we learned like, oh, they could do hard things. And not only could they, but they could enjoy it. So when the time came to actually do the Appalachian Trail, the funny thing is people ask us, how did you decide to do it with your kids? And I'm always like, well, how did you decide not to do it with your kids? Like, cause there's a lot of people out there um, kind of following their dreams. And I'm like, man, for the people that are doing it are saying it's the highest, highs and the lowest lows and the most epic thing they've ever done in their life. It's like, wouldn't you want to be around
3: your family while you're experiencing those things? So that is, that's the, 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 the idea is to be out with your kids, and is there a best time? I found, I found a quote, you know, because a lot of people, kind of younger people, talk to me sometimes about, you know, I I, I had kids in a in a profession that eh, not a lot of people have kids as a fishing guide, and so younger people kind of ask me like, how do you know when it's time to have kids? And I'm like, there's never, there's never a right time to have kids. Like if you wait for the right time to have kids, you'll you'll never have them. Right. I mean, like and so I would imagine that if you wait for the right time to to hike the Appalachian Trail with your kids, and especially as yours are spread out, you have a uh, uh, you're you were 38 during the book. uh, Your wife's 37. You have six children, 16, 15, 13, 11, 7 and Mm -hmm. um, 2. So that's quite a spread. So like if you were to wait for the perfect time to take them. There's never going to be a perfect time. And there's,
2: there's always an excuse. And I love what you said, making the analogy of having kids and starting the trail, because it's the same, the same excuses. And the best thing about having kids is that they actually invade your life and disrupt everything that you thought (laughs) was the, you know, the correct way to see the world. And that's the same thing about the trail. And in my experience, like almost any adventure period is like the best thing about it is that it invades your life and disrupts it. So if you're waiting for a time when it's not going to invade your life and disrupt it, you're almost missing the entire point of it, in my yeah. experience. Yeah. So
3: that's incredible. I mean, that's, that is an interesting way to look at it. And one of the things, like the quote that I had was that, uh, or I had uh, highlighted is there'd never be a perfect moment. I was suddenly struck by that old adage you always hear about when you have kids there's never a perfect time. You'll never be ready. Cami and I knew that all too well. And that's, you know, cause I'm reading through this and I'm like, yeah, that, that's just like, thinking about having kids. And then I ran across your quote right there. I was like, well, he, it's exactly what we're talking about. There's never a perfect time. So you have to kind of decide if there's never going to be a perfect time. Like, why was it then that, that you decided, I mean, there could be a better time than with a two-year-old maybe (laughs) it could be, it could be argued. Um, Well, if it's not one thing, it's
2: going to be another. I mean, with two-year-old, we had to wrestle with carrying him because he couldn't sustain the mileage that we did for 161 days straight, we averaged 13.6 miles a day, every single day, which is more than a half marathon a day of walking up and down hills with weight. So I actually do believe kids are capable of a lot. Uh, but the question of if it's going to like break something or create more trauma is always in the back of my mind also. So I don't think for a two year old that is sustainable. Now, actually, ironically. For a five-year-old or a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, I actually think it totally can be with mm-hmm. the proper training and mindset. Um, so we were wrestling with carrying him in diapers. But if we would have waited till he's three, four, five, I mean, everyone's like, "Oh, someday, someday." I think those are all just excuses. Like, you know, people think it's going to be easier when they're teenagers. It's like, get the fuck out of here! <laughs> it's not easier. Like, people have other shit going on at that point. Like, you got activities, and there's there's more to sacrifice and more difficulty in a way you got relationships and friendships and Mm -hmm. our teens gave up a lot to do this trail. Um, so it's, it's always hard. I mean, but that's, I think once again, that's the entire point of it. Like the reason why we go on adventures isn't to do something easy. It's like, what's that? There's some quote, like it's not an adventure until something goes wrong Mm -hmm. or something like that. (laughs) You know, like it's not an adventure until it actually just completely fucks up your life as you knew it. Uh, But I think the promise that we discovered with Adventures in This is that there's this hope that whatever you discover about yourself and the world is going to be worth it and better and worth disrupting. And I think that's maybe what people don't believe. So they're waiting for a perfect time, but really they're just hanging on to Shit, this is getting philosophical. I don't realize we're going to...
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> interesting because your book has so many different layers and this whole trip has so many different layers and, and really all the things that happen during this have many, many layers. And like the philosophical part uh, and the part that I picked up right away as a parent, you're trying to make the best decisions. You're trying to make a decision that is, that is going to benefit your family. And, and you think, yeah, this is where we're going. And then I, you know, like I came across this too. It said the scariest thing for me was that we would finish the trail, all 2,000 miles of it, and that someday my kids were going to hate me for it. The worst threats came not from the outdoors, but from inside of us, staying together, holding on to our love for each other, and not getting summit fever. And man, I was reading that. I'm like, There are so many situations like with fishing trips and other things that I take my kids to do. And it's like at some point you kind of have to force them because they don't really want to. And at the end of the day, they're, you know, hopefully you're thinking the best case scenario for this trip is at the end of the day, they're super glad they went. But it doesn't always turn out that way and no. and i'm talking about a 10 a a 5 hour fishing trip, an 8 hour fishing trip, not a 161 day journey. So that had to be something that you were wrestling with the whole time. Like are yeah. the kids liking it? I know you're you have to push them at some point. If, if you're not wrestling with that, that's what i i don't
2: have much of a definition of failure. I don't believe in failure at all. Like even if you make the biggest mistake, if you learn from it, in my mind that's a success. But when it comes to parenting, The really, the only definition of failure I even have is if you're not wrestling with those questions, if you don't on some level realize that you're fucking your kids up and making things hard for them and working your own stuff out, then I think that level of pride and lack of learning humility is probably the biggest failure I think I could commit as a parent. So, yeah, wrestling with that. We wrestle with that every damn day, Uh, you know, because you're right with kids what's the best case scenario of like kids being happy through any day, whether you're at home. I mean, now people are dealing with COVID and shoving their kids on zoom calls to talk to teachers. (laughs) Everyone hates it. You know, no one's happy like a lot of the time, but yet at the end of the day, hopefully the best case scenario I can hope is that we live somewhat intentionally and we direct our lives and our money and our time towards our values in a way that we're proud of. And we can look back on and say, Hey, I, I made that choice. Um, but it was not, it's not like black or white. Like that's where, I mean, yesterday I had this comment on YouTube where someone is like, in regards to a trail video, they're like, there is nothing wrong with these parents did. I back them 100%. There's no mistakes here. And I'm like, that's scary to me. <laughs> like they, that person, they don't know what's going on. Probably like don't have man. kids. <laughs> Seriously. Well, or they live in this world where, you know, everyone thought Lance Armstrong was a hero until you find out like these heroes, like real heroes are flawed. Yeah. Uh, it's complicated. So, yeah, we wrestled with all that every day and asked those questions. And, and I think the best we can do as parents is to ask those questions with our kids and say, Hey, we're doing the best we can. Um, we're going to pay for your therapy when you get older. (laughs) And I mean, seriously, we do. I'm not even, I'm not joking. It's kind of funny, but it's, that's what, like, that's our thing is like, we, our parents messed up us up and did the best they could. And we're going to mess you up and we're doing the best we can. And you're messing shit up and you're doing the best you can. And let's just like be okay with all of it. And, and we've been able to accomplish pretty great things. Like our kids have a lot of, I don't know what to call it, whether it's forgiveness or acceptance of that um, style of vulnerability. Cause they feel the same thing in their life. Like they mess shit up and they like to see it modeled. Like not that parents don't mess up, but how we mess up and how we deal with that and accept ourselves. That process.
3: And do you think in in your opinion, like it's one thing to kind of talk about you and your wife and how you feel about that, but how do you think that's all kind of reflecting with the kids? And you just touched on it there for a second, but like during this whole trip, like are you noticing that 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 everybody's got, like becoming more accepting of one another and everybody's kind of accepting that you're in this situation and there's not a whole lot anybody's gonna do about it. So this is this is kind of what we have. Man, that is that's meta stuff. Uh like in in this situation,
2: we're like being we're like lying and be like, hey, things are gonna be okay. This is great, like you're doing a good (laughs) job. Like just like any coach would, you know, when you see your team is losing, you're just like, you guys got it, you guys are great, you know. We had to like play this role for a while, at least it felt like it, because there was these days where it was so cold, you know, we're going through waist deep snow, (laughs) uh 20 mile days, uh so painful. I mean, this is especially in the beginning. It it wasn't all this way, but where there was, it just felt like there was no hope. I mean, you're 2000 miles from someplace that you're walking to. And then you bust your ass all day long. You wake up as early as you can. You hike as late as you can. And you get in eight miles. (laughs) I mean, and you like on a map, you literally can't even see any progress. Like it's like less than a, a literal pinpoint. So in terms of like morale, we had to find other things to focus on to boost our
3: morale. Um, And what were those? Like what, what do you do in that situation, mm-hmm. especially as you're dealing, it's interesting too, because, you know, it's one thing for you to do it and your wife to do it, but then you're dealing with a 17 year old all the way down to a two-year-old. So each one has like different things. Like a 17 year old oh, can think totally. about things that a two-year-old can't even possibly think about. And it's like, look, here's a gummy bear right here. And if we can just make Absolutely. it over that hill, I'll give it to yeah. you, you know, and <laughs> yes. but that's not working with a 17 year old. Like that, everyone is
2: living in their own world, Yeah, you know, and But actually one of the cool things about hiking was, and one of the reasons why we did it, it's a pretty big equalizer. Like, I mean, if you think about everyday world, like I come home from work and I'm doing a podcast with you and talking and selling copies of my book and I might land a book review that I care about, but I come home, my kids don't give a shit about that. (laughs) You know, like they're happy about either their video game or a new album being released by Taylor Swift or something else is the highlight of their day. Now, hiking is a little bit different. Hiking, when you bust your ass in the snow and your feet hurt and your shoulders hurt, and this is, by the way, for all seven people, everyone's shoulders hurt. Everyone's freezing their ass off. Everyone's hungry. And then you roll up to a hotel and you feel the warmth and you're drinking your cherry Coke or your beer and you see the pizza that lands on the table. You all have these feelings together. And it really was a fun thing to be able to experience those highs and lows together because I I realize it's a pretty rare thing the way we live in this world. Um, But to answer your question, how do we do with motivation? You know, there's there's a lot of ways, but I would say the biggest way was to set short-term goals. Like one of the big misnomers about the Appalachian Trail is you leave in Georgia and then you walk through the woods for 2,000 miles and then you end up in Maine. It's like not like that. I mean, you're going through towns every three days, every two days, you have access to roads and towns and grocery stores and whatnot. So we basically broke it up. I mean, not on purpose, but how it kind of ended up saving us was every three days, you'd roll into a town. And early on in the beginning, when it was so cold, a town meant a hotel, which meant a hot shower and Uh, brushing your teeth and eating at a buffet and getting pizza and beer and cherry Coke and turning on a television and sleeping in sheets. I mean, just the most (laughs) things that seem so simple now, but everyone looked forward to those things. So we'd say, Hey, we have 25 miles to the next hotel and every mile counted at that point. And then you step back five months later and you're like, shit, we just walked 2000 miles.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy, man. I uh, when 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 this first got set up, I was like, I got to check this out. So um, I'm at, I'm sitting with my family. I've got my wife and daughter, and actually, both my boys are home too. And uh, they they both live in Montana now, so they're they're kind of woods people as well. But I I turned on the YouTube video, and I was like, Well, I better just might as well just start start at the beginning. So I go back to the to the very first video. The trail, <laughs> man. Yes, oh, gosh, shit. that was dark. What a day! I mean, you start out, it's freezing rain. The you, I mean, you don't even make it like 400 yards, and then you're, you're back in the van. I mean, you had me hooked right there. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> this is gonna be the greatest video series of all time and then like i watched a little further and it's like finally you make it to a hotel and the whole family gets sick like barfing everywhere and i was like like, oh my god this is like and i'm looking at my wife and i'm like could you believe this like could you could we have done this this is amazing and she was she was glued to it she was just like what are they going to do next? They're going to Costco. Let's check that out. Like, <laughs> like the whole thing. I mean, but there's just all these adventures. Like everything is an adventure, and we we have a family of five. Like all of us, and even when when my daughter was a baby, like I mean, just I, I mentioned it in the beginning. Going to the grocery store with a bunch of kids is an adventure, and you're you're just taking it up like a thousand degrees by sleeping outside, walking every day. And then the, the logistics, I can't even imagine what the logistics are. Like You're saying you're going into a town every three days and your are grocery stores there. Is that what you did? And then you kind of carry three days of food for eight people? Or how does that yeah, work? Yeah,
2: but I mean, and this is something that's really important to me because, I mean, it, it's really hard to figure out. I mean, I don't mean to sound this negative. For someone like you who's at home, who's never done it. But once you get out there, you just figure shit out step by step. Yeah, I mean, you know how I mean, even just like how you're podcasting right now. You have a TV and you have a headphones and you have this box and that box and this program running. And someone will look at that and be like, "Well, you're a damn wizard." But you did it one step at a time. You know, you didn't get here overnight. So I want to. It is. It is complicated in a way, but you just. You also just figure it out. And we didn't know it on day one. We learned a little bit more on day two, and then on day three. You just learn stuff. So by the end, people would look at our family and they'd think we were a well-oiled machine. That's what people called us. It was really weird. And I was like, what are they talking about? And then, and I write about this in the book, but one day I just stepped back and I saw it like my one do- we arrive at camp and two of my kids pitch the tents. Uh, and one of my kids is going and gathering firewood. And one of my kids goes to the stream and starts grabbing water. I mean, this, these are all their jobs. And one of my kids pulls out their dinner food, which she was responsible uh, my 17 year olds is responsible for buying, carrying, and cooking all of the dinners. So every time we'd go to a town, three of my kids would go to the grocery store. One of them bought all the breakfasts, one of them bought all the um, snacks and lunches, and one of them bought all the dinners. And then they carried and prepared those. But that's like their only job, mm. you know? Uh, I mean, not their only job, but that was their main job. And I didn't have to think about it. Uh, we learned to delegate and we learned to trust our kids and empower them and it looked complicated as hell to people. But if you look at it on the trajectory of the 161 days, it was all just like one little mistake and one little lesson after another to a point where, yeah, it's pretty amazing from an outsider perspective. But when you're in it, like it's pretty subtle stuff actually. But that's what, and that's, I guess one of the big things was, book and kind of our lifestyle is easy to turn us into a hero by saying that's amazing. But at the end of the day, like, what did we actually do? We walked. That's it. Like literally something anyone with legs can do is walk. And it ended up being this amazing story, but I think it was more amazing for what we didn't do. Like we didn't quit. We didn't stay home. We didn't walk away. So that's why I want to I want to demystify it a little bit and say like you know I think we get addicted to comfort or technology or you know and I'm not against these things they're great they're fine but for people that want to live more adventure
3: uh I think it's possible yeah it is possible especially with with uh with small steps um uh, like you're saying and 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 it seems I see what you're saying, but at the same time, I have done a, a considerable amount of backpacking and packing for one for three or four days is, you know, a challenge at first, then you kind of get to figure it out. Yeah. Packing for eight though. That's, that's different. It's definitely different.
2: Well, there was, you know, there was a, my wife was really good at that and she had spreadsheets and, you know, we were having to buy eight pairs of gloves and eight pairs of shoes and, this and that, like in the beginning, so it was. There was definitely some organization required.
3: Yeah, um, and then the other thing that's difficult too, and you do touch on this in your book, is that you know packing for eight is one thing, buying gear for eight or buying gear for one can be very expensive. And you you were saying you know, and it should be because you, you're you're trusting your lives to this gear, whether it's the tent or the rain jacket or whatever you're wearing. And now you're doing it for eight, and so you had to get pretty creative about how you were doing that and I'd kind of like to know like how that how that happened because to take to just take a break for 161 days from from your regular life that's what a lot of people are going to be interested in like how did how did you make that work how did you and your wife make that work to where you know financially this is going to be something that 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 you're able to do and that's freedom i mean that's freedom yeah. to be able to to just stop what you're doing and go for 161 days. I mean, I don't know. How did, how did you do that?
2: Yeah. I love that question. I mean, there's, I'm sure we could talk about that for a while. So you let me know where <laughs> you, <laughs> Man, you We go got with plenty it. of time. But, um, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to retire probably in my mid to early thirties. Um, and, I started taking on creative work that I enjoyed at that point. I mean, I didn't like stop working, but I stopped needing to work for money. And, and I was involved in a startup and selling a few businesses and I bought some property and we weren't rich uh, at all, but we made more than we spent. And we could, I knew I would rather spend less than live in a cardboard box and not have to be accountable to a boss or a project or a client every day than have a fancy car, but yet have to be somewhere between nine to five every single day. So we made some choices early on um, about stepping back from kind of the grind or the work to live to live a life that reflected our values of what we really wanted, not what we felt like we had to do. So when it came time to the trail, like we did have an advantage in that I wasn't walking away from a job per se or clients uh, that were going to fire us or anything like that. But it's still hard to to uproot your life, everything as you know it yeah. and, and replace it. But this is what I want to talk about because in terms of the adventure itself, people hear it and they think, Oh, that's crazy expensive and all this. I think I budgeted something like 50 grand. Uh, REI says, uh, five grand a person on average is what it takes to hike the AT. Um, which actually, if you think over five months is not, Crazy at all? I mean, right. it's way cheaper than Disneyland. Mm-hmm. I mean, people drop five or ten grand on a week, sure. all the time. Yeah. um So with eight of us, that'd be forty grand with a ten grand buffer. You know, is not unreasonable at all. Um, but when it all was said and done, and this includes renting our house and just amazing. So on on the trail, there's this phenomenon called trail magic, where people basically like. I don't know. I mean, it's all different types of people, whether it's people that do this all the time or some, sometimes it's a one-off people will bring hikers food and drinks. The first time I ever heard of it was like someone saying, Oh, I was just walking along a stream and there's a six pack of beer in the stream and a trail angel left it. And I was like, shit, I want to do the Appalachian trail. I didn't (laughs) even like beer, but that just that idea sounded amazing to me. And we got hooked up by so many people An Amish family invite us into their house. We stayed with a cult. We stayed in an abandoned (laughs) church. We stayed in a CrossFit gym. Um, People would drive for hours to bring us meals and cigars and our kids' favorite foods and cereals, all because they wanted to support what we were doing. And when I did the math at the end of it, um, when I took into account renting out our house and all the expenses, uh, the food, the hotels, it was... $80 Eighty dollars a day for our family to be on a trail, which is ten dollars a person a day. Wow, which is cheaper than living at home. You can't live at home with Wi-Fi for ten dollars a day. So, you know, it's not quite what people think it is. Uh, in terms of people think of it as this like super expensive thing. Now, it's not easy to to leave your life, but it's not expensive. Like. Yeah.
3: I wouldn't think it would be. I mean, I don't I don't my impression of the Appalachian Trail and you know, I grew up in Tennessee, so the Appalachian Trail was always looming kind of and I knew a lot of people that have done it and 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 I'm familiar with it. It never seemed to be expensive to me except for the stopping what you're doing and then Yeah, you know, stop there's no income coming in. Yep. The actual hiking on the trail, you know, you're feeding yourself and 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 you're you're moving along that doesn't seem expensive. What seems expensive and difficult is as you move into your life and you've got a job and everything I mean it seems kind of like something that a young you know that would be more conducive to being kind of a young person getting started maybe a maybe a gap year between between college or something like that and and you know a time when you don't have a lot of responsibilities but when then when you start piling on there or or when you retire and And then when you start piling on the responsibilities and the kids, that's when it seems very unlikely that you could do this. But I want to talk about that for a second, because there's two things about that. One, like a a book
2: that was very influential to me early on was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with that, but he was all about limiting liabilities. Like, you know, wealth is accumulated. This is, I was not planning on going into this, but wealth is accumulated by focusing on four areas, income, expenses, assets, and liabilities. And his whole thing was, your income needs to be greater than your expenses. And when you get money, rich people accumulate assets instead of liabilities. And a liability is something like a car that costs more money or a jet ski or all these things. So one thing we've done really well over the years is to limit our liabilities. <clears throat> the expenses that continue to bleed you out because they are so damn costly. Um, you know, it might only be like Netflix might only be $10 a month. But when you think about the ongoing cost a year or when it comes to planning an adventure like this, a bunch of liabilities and you can't. They're forming your entire life, Mm -hmm. you know, the little car payment, the little vacation payment, the credit card payment. So that's really important to me. And then the second thing I want to mention is just, you know, if you actually do the math for, I think our family was 23 grand um, maybe before uh, the vacation income rental for renting our house out. Sorry. Uh, we rented our house out as a vacation home while we were gone, but 23 grand. I mean, from some people, they hear that number and they're like, that is a crap ton of money. There's no way I'm ever going to have 23 grand coming in my pocket. But, but if you think of like, you know, these average people, a lot of them are making 60 grand a year. Mm-hmm. And if they were to set aside uh 25% of that, you know, and, And the way we live our lives in some ways, they might not even miss it in three or four years, they could have the vacation of a lifetime paid off, you know, and back what I had to do, um, when I, when we left for the bike trip, I was working, uh, waiting tables at Red Robin. Uh, that was the last job I really had about 20 years ago. And they, I said, I need to do this bike trip. It's going to take three months. I need the time off. And they're like, well, you can't have the time off. And I said, like, they said, you can't leave for that long. I mean, they're paying me fucking minimum wage, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, well, then I guess I quit. And if you want to hire me when I get back, you know, let me know. But I was a trainer. Like I was one of the top guys, but they, in their minds, they're like, well, you can't quit. And I'm like, you're paying me $6 an hour. Like, what am I going to do? Sacrifice my life for $6 an hour. So I don't know. I really want to encourage people to just rethink the way they're thinking about finances and, and being stuck somewhere. Um, there's jobs out there. There's ways to make money, and if even if you can't find a way when you get back, when you come back off the Appalachian Trail or whatever adventure it is you want to do, five months later, you might not even care because you you have such a different perspective on life in the world. It's like I
3: don't know. I- no, no, that's all of this. Like you said, I'm not even planning. I wasn't even planning on going into this, but this is such a big part of of the reality of following your dreams. You hear all all these people who are like, "Well, follow your passion, follow your dreams. You should do what you want to do." But when you when you become hamstrung by debt or recurring expenses or uh an automobile payment or something like that, it yeah. makes it makes your dream impossible. And we had uh one of my one of some of the, one of the best podcasts we had was this guy uh, sailing sophisticated lady on uh, on YouTube, and that was Rick Moore, and his advice was exactly that. He was like, "Look, man, if you got a dream and you got something that you want to do, the first step is to eliminate debt and to eliminate any responsibility financially, so that you could yep. just stop doing what you're doing, and you don't owe anyone anything. That's yep. freedom, and that's that's, that's, that's the, the ability." Key.
2: <clears throat> that's what allowed us to retire at the age of 30. It wasn't that we had a ton of money. It was that we got rid of our expenses. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it is a sacrifice, but if you want to live your dream and have, you know, new cars and internet accounts and debt, it's like, no, you got to choose. And we right. chose. Um, so that's where I'm fine with people saying that they don't want to do it. Like, I'm not here to convince anyone to quit your job and hike 2000 miles. Right. Like, fuck that. But what I will push back against if people say, Oh, I can't do that. You're something special. You got lucky. Like you're the superhuman. You're this or that. I'd be like, no, 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 no. I'm not letting you off the hook that easy. Like we all make choices. Um, and yes, there is luck involved in my story. And, you know, I, I consider myself very fortunate, but there was also, when we were canceling my life insurance policy, paying off all our houses when everyone was telling us it was a terrible idea and qu- canceling our health insurance you know to manage.
3: well i lost you there for just a second but i i think I, I i got where you're going so there's a couple of things that i want to touch on there first of all um you and your wife had to have this conversation about this is the life you want to live these are the sacrifices you're going to make when at what point did you do that did you do that before you got married did you do that like while you were married and decided Like this is the direction we're going to go in so that you can retire early and you can do things that you want to do. I mean, you took this bike trip 20, 25 years ago, right? Like, yeah, you've been on this path.
2: Yeah. Well, like I said, I guess one of my um, superpowers, if you want to call it that, is. I, I'm pretty tone-deaf when it comes to whatever the culture says is a necessary requirement. You know, we got married when we were 20 and everyone was like, oh, you gotta wait to get married. And no, I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. I'd rather be with the person I want to be with than get a career, which I mean, who the fuck would gamble on a career? I mean, like, look <laughs> nowadays, Amazon's replacing everything. Could you imagine like saying no to the love of your life for your job that gets replaced by a robot? Um, so that <laughs> didn't make sense to me. And then people said, well, you got to wait to have kids because you need to go to school and you need to get settled. And I was like, what is settled? Like we have more money and affluence than anyone else in the rest of 99.9% of history. Like when is enough going to be enough? So I just kind of early on just didn't have that sensitivity to paying attention to that kind of stuff, (laughs) which, you know, makes for some hard situations sometimes early on our bent was more religious. And with my wife and I, we wanted to be missionaries. So we wanted to live some Spartan lifestyle and kind of reject comfort culture. Um, So that was our desire early on. So we, you know, we would prioritize what we saw as like God and faith over consumerism or culture or safety or any of those types of things over the years that shifted where, uh, our religious views have changed quite a bit and we're not driven by that same thing. But I think having those conversations early on let us know that we can live without our, what our neighbors think is a necessity. And we're not only will we be fine, in a lot of cases we'll be happier. So while there was some discussions early on before we got married um, about being different and choosing an alternative life, a lot of those are made on a day-to-day basis Mm. as we just one decision at a time, you know, what are we going to do about school? What are we going to do about a trip this year? Should we go to Disney world or should we hike for 12 days around a mountain? Um, And do we want to be consumers or producers? And do we want to wake up early and run as a family Uh, or should we register for the marathon this year? I mean, just little things.
3: Right yeah i can see that on a day to day basis but at some point there's got to be that communication you know and and that's where you see young people my 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 son's 23 he's thinking about you know about he's serious with a with a young lady and you know i'm encouraging him to have these kind of conversations of what is it that you want in life what what is what is your financial kind of not not like what are your goals what is your five year goal it's like what what is important to you like what is What are, where are your, where are your standards and ethics and, and do you want debt? Do you not want debt? Do you want nice things or do you want freedom or do you want, or can you have both? Like, you know, what are, what are your views on that? It's important to, to discuss that and to, uh, with your perspective, um, you know, mate for life. Um, so we were talking about, um, the trail magic and all of the, all of the trail angels and stuff. And you go over that a lot in your book about these people that would just, you would walk up and they'd be cooking breakfast or they would, you know, be doing all these nice things for you. And it, and it kind of seems, you know, to somebody that's unfamiliar with your story, that there were just nice things being poured upon you and your family this whole time. But if you read into it and you see even just a little bit on, uh, on YouTube, it wasn't really that way like you got a lot of negativity thrown at you uh, both online and probably in person as well from all different areas i would imagine from friends and family from people that really just kind of mean well and they are just like what are you doing you're like going crazy but i'd like to talk about that that negativity that you experienced online and then how that was you know which is which is worse like negativity and criticism from friends and family or negativity and criticism from strangers that you don't know on the internet?
2: Man, that's tough. (laughs) Yeah. Those are, uh, those are really formidable factors for us. Both of them were, you know, the simple stuff with friends and family is people wouldn't really criticize us to our face, but there's kind of this tone of like, Oh, you guys are crazy. And it might even be said in an endearing way, Mm -hmm. but we've also seen that it can be like an invalidating way. Like where they're like, you know, essentially we've bought into the rat race, but their only way to make sense of us is to call us crazy. Like, well, are we crazy? Like who gets to decide what's crazy or not? Like maybe showing up at a job to make fictional money is crazy. Like, you know, and that's where walking in the woods and meeting other hikers it was so great for us because we saw that there's these other people who, you know, they just get it. Like they get us, like, they're like, Oh, they get more from walking in the woods and building the strength of their leg muscles and eating food for calories that they're burning than sitting at home watching TV. Um, but we didn't know that there was other people that existed like that and maybe, or maybe that's why we went to the trails to find those people. I don't know, (laughs) but but all that to say, yeah, that, that does, I think it does take a toll on us. And I never realized it until I got outside of it, that the friends and family that just like, you, there's just this underlying, I don't know, this feeling like, Oh, you must be crazy. Um, you know, and it, a lot of us read between the lines, like it's kind of like what they're not saying or what they're not asking, you know, they're not asking us advice on how to like, do stuff. Not that they, not that we have all the answers, but also I would ask them for advice if I wanted to do, you know, fix a tire, get help from them. And it seems like, like I said, peel paint us in a picture that it's just something that makes it something they don't have to deal with anymore. Mm. Um, the online hate was a whole nether beast. Um, man, that was hard, uh, at first, because like kind of as the story goes, The first time we really dealt with it was in the Smokies at uh, Newfound Gap. We were in this blizzard. We spent the night in this women's restroom on the concrete floor, which was actually, I know these things sound crazy, but at the time it was a very reasonable decision. (laughs) Uh, And the Rangers actually advise it because it's the only heated building and the road was closed. Uh, And by heated, I mean, I think it got up to 45 degrees at night. Um, in the building versus the 17 degrees outside. And we step out of the bathroom, the road opens up and we're expecting my parents to pick us up, but instead it was CPS child protective services coming to interview us about taking our kids away, uh, because someone had reported us and, uh, everything like worked out. Like it was very, they were very reasonable and very kind, but it was scary. And that's when we realized, Oh, these online people watching our videos through the course of the hike, I think we got reported to three different government agencies. And then we started digging into it and there was these like forums online where people were just going, I mean, it was like their full-time job to point out how much they hated us and thought what well, we were doing was stupid for all sorts of reasons. Like from my looks, to the way I talked to the way we parented, to our religious beliefs, or lack of religious beliefs or whatever. And it was debilitating at first. You know, you can read this stuff. And then I get in these loops where I'm like, oh, I got to change these people's minds. They don't know me. They don't know the truth. I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to help correct them. I'm going to fix them. And that is a fucking full-time job. I mean, if I dedicated my life to that. You'll never win.
3: You'll never there, win that job.
2: There is no winning. I mean, no points. You're not getting anywhere. You're not changing anyone's mind. I mean, even if I set my mind to it, I could. it could spend hours and I could sway them maybe 1% or I could even make it worse. Yeah. And that was a hard lesson to learn, but it was one we learned very quickly because, you know, I, I hopped on there once and I was like, Hey, I need to set the record straight. And I kind of offered stuff and then they turned it against me. And that's when I could see, Oh, these people, they're not here to dialogue. They're not here to learn, uh, from us at least. Um, they're here. I, I thought they're using our life to feel better about themselves. So if you're happy about your decision about staying home, paying your bills and sending your kid to soccer, not, I don't want to minimize these people, but you know, then you're going to look at the crazy wacko family and say, see that crazy, uh, religious, controlling, narcissistic, um, anti-vaxxer. I mean, and we're not even those things. (laughs) I'm just saying that that's those, the labels that they would use for us. Um, and, uh, and then they'll just say, see, that? that's why I'm obviously making the right choice about my life. So, and once we saw that it was that, we're like, oh, you know what? This isn't a conversation. They yeah. don't want to hear from us. Yeah. So we had to learn to just completely tune out of it.
3: Yeah. But I mean, then there's this other layer of how is this affecting the kids? Like, it's one thing if it's just you out there and you're doing your thing and people don't like it and they're giving you a hard time about it. And then, then it's another to be like, man. I brought my kids into this. Now what? Like, was that a thought like of, of how that, how, how the kids are handling the online stuff? Not really because they didn't even know
2: about it. Oh, okay. And, and that's the, that's the cool thing about the trail. And I see with all of life, you know, we get in a pattern of thinking that like, whatever's happening on here is real life. Mm -hmm. Like what's happening in the Capitol right now matters to me. And like most of the time it doesn't, it doesn't affect my day. It's not going to affect my year. It's not going to affect my lifetime, at least in a way that any amount of effort I expend is going to make a difference in that world. But the amount that we stress about it sometimes is way out of whack. You know, what matters to my kids is, do I love them? Do I say something nice about them? Do I like, you know, do we have an adventure plan this weekend? Like the, so on the trail, there was such a stark reality difference between what was happening in this virtual world, which may have well have been Alice's Wonderland, for yeah. all they were concerned, because it didn't exist. You know, like people, a thousand people are sitting in their bathrobes at home saying they hate us. <laughs> well, if we're not hot, if we're not reading it, we literally don't know about yeah. it. And then we ha- we walk into a shelter, and there's ten friends that are wearing boots covered in mud, and they're like Crawfords, and they like clap and we walk in. They're like, we missed you. We love you. Here's some pancakes. They like, love us. So it was all about which world we decided to focus on. Mm. We could read this and be like, Oh, this is important. We need to know like what's going on. in some lady in her bathrobe in Massachusetts saying about us right now, it's like, or we can enjoy the damn pancakes and be like, this is what is real. So, it, it was a weird juxtaposition, like literally the night after the closest we ever came to quitting. We didn't really think about quitting the entire time, but the closest we came was after spending the night reading people's comments on Reddit. And it was so depressing. And I I was I couldn't tell what was real and what was not. And these people were getting in my heads. And I was like, wait, am I a bad dad? Um, are we making a huge mistake? Am I just doing this to control everybody? Is this going to ruin my kids lives? Because that's what people are saying. and Somehow we like got it shut off and Cammy, my wife and I, were like, dude, we got to stay off there. Then we roll into this trail town called hot springs. And like, we had just got done with the smokies and we roll up to this bar and everyone's like looking at us and they all knew about us. They had all heard about us coming through the blizzard and someone like pays for our meal, like anonymously. And another hiker slowly like come up and they're like, Hey, I just want to introduce myself. Uh, and we were like, damn heroes. Like, in real life at this bar. Like people were buying our drinks and stuff, you know, it was like, we came back from the war, but then online we were villains. So it's like, well, which are we going to pay attention to? Like,
3: yeah, that's bizarre, man. And then, that was so bizarre. Then, then, you know, you think about it, like if you had done this 20 years ago, you know, r- rewind the clock before, before there's YouTube, it would, you would have been a, you would have been a, an urban legend. Like, people would have heard about this family that once walked the Appalachian trail, but there would no be, there wouldn't be YouTube or Instagram or any of Reddit or any of these places for people to, to talk about it. So that's, that's kind of a weird thing too. Is like just social media, just the internet, just all of that brings all this attention to something that would never have, you wouldn't have even been able to get attention. I mean, you would have a magazine writer at every, at every stop. You still wouldn't have gotten as much out of it as you did with, with YouTube and not, I mean, as much out of it, people wouldn't have been able to experience your story the way that, that you can today with YouTube and, and, and all these other things. But it's, I don't know. There's so many people that just want to judge and you're the one that's out there doing it. It's like that, that Teddy Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena. It's like, it's easy to, it's easy to criticize. Yep. Unless you're the one there, but there's. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I, I know because you have a public platform, but literally,
2: when you put stuff out there, a million people can have an opinion about you. Yeah, you know, which, and it that feels important for some reason, just because it exists. But like you said, you know, well, even it's ten great. years ago,
3: it's great when it's positive. You're like, wow, wow, dopamine going crazy in your brain. Oh, look at this! Everything, everybody likes what I'm doing. This is great. But then when it goes negative, man, woo, not not well. And we've even fun. learned,
2: we've even learned we had to get rid of uh feeling good about the positive stuff in a way <clears throat> because you know it's like so i played professional blackjack for 10 years and i ran a team and i trained my players and you know we learned to beat the game mathematically of blackjack and when they go into a casino and they won big and they get all excited i'm like don't get too excited because when you lose big it means you're going to feel all crushed <laughs> and you just you trust the math you get excited for playing the game right not for the wins and losses the wins and losses will take care of themselves Cause if you get fixated on the result, you know, yeah, the internet will fucking love you one day until they hate you. Right. <laughs> but either way, it's not real. Like, you know, they're just using you to get through their day. And the second it makes sense for them to fucking burn your ass uh, and light you tar and feather you and publicly and burn you at the stake, they'll do that
3: like in yeah. a heartbeat. There's no devotion there. <laughs> yeah. No, they didn't know you to begin with. Now, what's to think? What 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 would you? Why would you think that they would be loyal to you uh, when they never knew you to begin with? The people that are going to be loyal to you, the people that that really know you on a personal level, know who you are and and know what you're all about. You know, hopefully that's the case. Um, hopefully, yeah, man, you're an interesting dude, man. I mean, more and more I talk to you. You ran a blackjack team. I've never even heard of someone running a blackjack team. Uh, and playing yeah, professional that, blackjack. What what do you do on a blackjack team? <laughs> is that counting cards and 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 yeah. is it exactly yes counting cards? Um, yeah. So i I got back from
2: this um, bike trip, um, when I was 21 or something, and I had I was a Christian, uh, so and I was like kind of a fundamentalist type where I was like really anti business and anti money. So we were going to be missionaries. So I was like even though I think I was like good at business, like in high school, I sold t-shirts and candy out of my locker and stuff like that. And loved it. I, I decided to like reject money or being good at any of those things. <clears throat> but then I got back from this bike trip. I told you we got hit by a car and I had two or three months free. And I was like, what should I do with my time? I didn't want to go back to work. Cause I, I was planning on biking across the country the whole summer. And I had bought this book on how to beat the game of blackjack mathematically. And I was like, Oh, this would be a fun hobby. Um, So I read the book and I started doing it and I took 800 bucks. The casino lost it, uh, (laughs) took our last $800 and I won and I kept on winning. And it's not actually that simple. So I don't want people to think it is, but went on to, uh, start a blackjack team where I trained probably, we had 20 or 30 people playing for us at its peak at a time and a million dollars worth of investors. And we were playing all over the country slash world. Uh, And I was just managing the team. Then we built a website, which I think is the largest blackjack training website in the world to this day. Wow. Um, So it kind of, it it was where I got my business education um, coming from a anti-business religious perspective. That was my school of hard knocks was running this blackjack team and learning how to write emails to investors that. You know, and say, hey, we won X amount at a casino this last month.
3: One thing I've always wondered about that is it you always hear about counting cards and how that's I don't know if it's illegal or just looked down upon by the casino. They'll kick you out or whatever. Is it legal to count cards? It is 100 percent legal well i would imagine i mean now i can imagine like if you've got some device and you're 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 doing something with a device i could see how that would be totally illegal like that's that's not allowed right but Which, if you can do that, it with your that's brain and but your even eyeballs- that used to be legal
2: yes you're using your brain you're using your eyeballs it's one of the most to the casino's credit it's one of the most um the biggest misnomers that exists because all card counters are doing is taking the same information that's accessible to anyone uh And they're using their brain to take that information to make a decision based on the future, which, by the way, is what the casino encourages you to do with things like a roulette wheel where they put all the numbers up and they say, oh, it hit black. They're just using false information to try and get you to make that decision. So when they encourage you to do it, for some reason, it seems right. But then when you do it, I mean, essentially, for it to be illegal, they would be basically having to say that doing math in your mind is
3: illegal. Right. In, i mean that just in seems certain like context. okay you're you're smarter or more organized or you can organize your <laughs> thoughts better than someone else and so therefore you win maybe if you can organize the your thoughts better than the casino thought you could or bet you can then then you end up winning a lot of money and if so you they can don't do that like consistently, it consistently oh i'm sure they don't like it, yeah, they don't so, like that's, it.
2: so they try and they get but when they cross a line so it hits their bottom line uh, but where they cross the line is I think one, when they discriminate you for doing it, because they kind of, they create the damn rules to the game. How they do they even how, they, they even, how would they even
3: know? How would they even know that you're counting cards? Like, are you doing something with your hands? Are you doing, is there, is there any way that they could look at five players and say that guy's counting cards? Yeah,
2: kind of. I mean, there's two <laughs> main ways. Like the the main way is just by how people dress and act and look like When you walk in there, there's a certain look of someone that's in Vegas to have a good time. That was not me. I was not there to have a good time. Why don't you
3: just dress like that?
2: Well, so we would. Okay. But still, you can only kind of fake it so much because I'm there. It's my fucking job. I'm there grinding it out, you know, there to pay for my kids' stuff. Like, you know, so I took it seriously. But the second, the main way actually is card counters are known for fluctuating their bets by dramatic amounts Mm. because, um, the way it works with like, let's just say six decks, which is a common game is you have the disadvantage a lot of the times. And then sometimes you have the advantage. And this is true for every blackjack player, even the, just the traditional gamblers. The only difference is a card counter knows when they have the advantage. So that's when they would be increasing their bet by as much as they think they can get away with either financially or, um, visibly with the casino. Hmm. So we would bet like $5 or nothing. And then we'd sometimes bet three hands of $5,000, you yeah. know? Um, and that's suspicious behavior. Yeah.
3: For so they might let that go. Gambling. They may let that go once or twice. But then when you do that four or five times, they're like that, that guy needs to get out.
2: Yeah, kind of. It all <laughs> depends. I mean, there's times when you get, I get kicked out of a casino. The second I walked in, they'd recognize me and kick me out. There was times when we played at casinos for months and months and months. And then they, okay. I don't know if they just didn't care, or you just never know. Like, yeah. that's
3: so. a, that's interesting. I've I've never. That's a new. That's a different world. I mean, I've always kind of heard about that. I've had questions. I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that because I I just have, I had no idea <laughs> about that. It's kind of cool when you come across all these different things, especially that's what the podcast has been good for me about. I've I've just been able to talk to so many different people and learn so many different things that I didn't think existed, like counting cars. Well, so-
2: so can I share one of my most valuable lessons that I learned from uh, counting cards? Is so in counting cards, um, well, like in gambling, this is the math and this is the way we trained our brains to think about it. Um sorry, that's my timer for the resetting your camera here. Oh yeah,
3: let's do that. Um
2: with counting cards, you train yourself in a new way to make decisions. You know, gamblers walk in there and they make decisions off all sorts of crazy things that really don't matter. And that's, that's kind of, it has this feeling of control. It's like wearing your lucky underwear or bringing your lucky (laughs) rabbit's foot. It gives you this talisman to hang on to and essentially blame and credit. But yeah, it has actually no bearing on the math. That's why the casino is not concerned about that. Like they use math and the casino, like there was this Onion article, if you know. Remember the onion newspaper yeah. it's like the satire thing, but it said, <laughs> the headline said casino has winning night. You know, and it was like, <laughs> it, was, it was like meant to sound all lucky, but casinos win every single night. Um, so anyways, what we did as a card counter was learn to basically ignore all that information and train ourselves to absorb and make decisions off of new information. And if you made these decisions off this new information, basically adding and subtracting the number one and paying attention to when there's more tens left to be dealt and aces, um, then eventually you would win. But you are never guaranteed to win on any particular hand or any particular night. Um, you, know, you had about a 1% advantage against the casino, which means if you do that math, that if you went to the casino 100 times, you might lose 49 times. And you would win 51 times, which is very slight. And in fact, you lose 49 times and you remember the loss losses more than the wins. Mm-hmm. So you, it always feels like you're losing. But if you play the game right, you will win. Anyways, what I've learned about kind of like loss aversion is a lot of people, the way we live our lives and the way we parent is we make decisions that, are, that feel safer because we don't want to lose. Um, you know, and I think with the hike and things like this, people think, Oh, if I go out in the woods, what if my kid gets eaten by a bear and, and my family finds out everyone's going to say, uh, Oh, you should have stayed home. See, I knew that was going to happen. That's dangerous. (laughs) Like you shouldn't go outside and do shit like that because they're so afraid of the losses. And, but when you think about it, and I wrote some of these statistics in the book, like there's like, uh, I think 1.25 bear deaths in the country a year. Okay. And like, bears. yeah, exactly. And then there's like 300,000 people die of heart disease every year. And I'm uh, don't quote me on these stats, but I'm just giving you some (laughs) general numbers. So it's far more dangerous to drive to McDonald's than it is to walk in the woods. Like the car accident rate and the heart disease from McDonald's is far more dangerous, but we're never afraid of McDonald's. So anyways, one of the things we've tried to learn and apply to our life in other ways, but I learned this in blackjack is to make the decision that is going to make me the, learn the system of decision-making. That's going to make me the happier in the long run, not the decision that's going to prevent me from feeling losses that especially neighbors and friends and family can point at and be like, see, like everyone's looking to a point at those decisions mm-hmm. and they're looking for immediate results. Um, but we've had to learn to ignore a lot of that and just live our, our life in a way that cl- most reflects our values. And a lot of times that means we take some losses like, or at least what feel like losses. I mean, we could have like got on the Appalachian trail. There's such a high chance that we would have not made it the full way. We could have made it 800 miles or 200 miles. And someone got sick or someone breaks. I mean, we had eight people, one person twists an ankle, one wrong step and we're done. And I think people could have looked at us. People probably would have looked at us and said, "See, yeah, that's why you don't do that stuff."
3: <laughs> See, I told you, you couldn't hike two thousand miles. You only made it, yeah, <laughs> nineteen hundred. <1900. laughs> you lose. Which sounds ridiculous, but that's
2: how people would. That's how even probably how I would have felt I, about it. I, I knew they weren't
3: going to make it. I knew it. <laughs> yeah, but you know what comes out of that though is with your attitude of of there is no failure. If you had made it eight hundred miles, you go away with something. Like you go away with like, yeah, well, maybe we didn't, maybe we didn't make it, but maybe what we got out of it was even better than making it because we learned these, these lessons, which is something that kind of, I wanted to talk to you quickly about, like, I'm sure that people will ask like, what's the most valuable lesson you learned on this trip? And to me, I'm sure that there's a lot of valuable lessons that you learned on this trip, because I'd, I've done a couple of things that were like real, real big things in my life. and. You know, one of which was going to this this camp called Seal Fit. And it was like a 50-hour camp that the Navy SEALs beat you down and, and really make you kind of question everything in your life. And and then you end up either making it or not, or lots of people quit. And then there's another event that I did like that. And then you put the two, you come away from one event, and I was like, oh, this is definitely the most valuable lesson I learned from that event. Then you go to this other event, like, oh, I learned this big event, this big lesson from this event. Then you go on about a year later and you're like, you know what? The most valuable thing was actually both of those events, which taught me this. And then maybe a year later, you're like, man, I'm really glad I did those things. But but the real takeaway is this. And I just kind of wonder like what your what your thought process, what your family's thought process has been about that most valuable lesson and how that has kind of morphed into. You know a couple of years later now, now you're like, "No, no, the real takeaway is is this, so I just wonder if, like you could go through like the 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 few things that you thought were the big takeaways, and then maybe where you stand now,
2: yeah, I love that um, you know, and i I guess in the course of writing the book i I was forced to try and create these lessons into chapters, yeah. so i I did put some thought into that, but I also would say, as a whole, I don't feel the need to label the lesson as much. I just trust the process, you know, when you when you live a life of adventure and when you push yourself to uncomfortable zones. I've just found that the growth that comes from that is kind of the payoff in itself for me. And what's tough about our family is there's 8 people and 8 people have 8 different perspectives, you know, and I can't represent all all of us, but but I will say as I guess one of the leaders of this trip that just the shift in perspective to me makes it worth it. You know, when you leave home, you see the world differently. When you walk through waist deep snow, then when you walk into a hotel, you see a hotel differently. You Mm -hmm. see running water differently. You see a carpet differently. And you see each other differently. To me, that was one of the biggest, Benefits. I don't know if it was a less than so much as it was. I carried um, my two-year-old for about the first 700 miles of this trip. His name is Rainier, and I carried him on my back. He the pack that I carried him in weighed 44 pounds, and I lost about 30 pounds. I think in about three weeks, uh, on accident, like I was eating like crazy. I was eating a. We were eating large pizzas as an appetizer. And because we were hiking so much and losing so much weight uh, and it got to a point after about 700 miles where my, my hips started going numb, my, or my uh, upper thighs started going numb. I was so worn out and I, um, I would take these naps where I'd set my alarm for eight minutes and I could fall asleep in about a minute, just sleeping on pine needles. And I would get at least four or five minutes in before I could wake up and feel a little bit better for maybe another 20 or 30 minutes before I have to do this again, I was so worn down. And one day it was in Shenandoah national park. And I, I roll up and my kids are waiting there. Cause we were always lagging behind carrying the baby. And my daughter, she was 16 at the time. She's like, what, what's taking you guys so long? And I'm like, we're carrying your fucking brother. Like, give me a break. <laughs> what do you think we're doing out here? Like you, I said, and I said, you know, you want to see what it's like, why don't you carry him? And it was just one of those things you say as a dad to like tell your teenager to like shut the fuck up, you know? <laughs> Anyways, she was like, fine, I'll do it. Uh, Cause she's like stubborn like me, you know? And so she did. She carried the baby. And you know what? For the next four hours, she kicked ass. Uh, and this is my 16 year old daughter. So I'm like, oh, I'm the dad. Like I'm the strong one here. Let me help you, you poor teenage daughter who doesn't, can't (laughs) carry, you know, obviously this 44 pound weight. So she carried the baby. And up until this point, we had been tweaking, like you talk about, you know, preparation and efficiency and I'm an efficiency guy. So I was always tweaking like how much weight we had as a group, how we were doing snacks, like how we could do things more efficiently with our time. Cause every day meant miles and every calorie meant energy and, you know, weight, all this stuff. There's all these equations going on. Um, which you could probably also harken back to the casino days, (laughs) you know? Um, So we're, we're figuring out every ounce, every calorie, all this stuff. And we were tweaking it and getting like five or 10% gains. Anyways, that day I, I laid down in my tent and I cried and I realized that my kids could carry Rainier. And I thought I was the only one that could, but that was a reality I had created. Not that I had, I hadn't trusted them. I was like, Oh, I'm the strong dad. Like, you know, I need to take care of this kid's like, stand back, let the superhero do his job. And it was a very humbling experience. And from that day on, I would say we did a 25% uh, boost on our miles all from that one decision of learning that my kids carry the baby and I didn't have to be the damn superhero. Um, so really what I'm, my, point in all this was I got a new perspective on my kids and even myself of what they were capable of and how I was preventing them from growth. Like a lot of times we look at our teenagers and oh. we're like, Oh, those fucking consumers sit there and play video games all day and spend my money and don't do shit. Well, I have to go out and work and do all this stuff. Well, I've learned that I think our kids actually want to do more, mm-hmm. but I was the one preventing them from, because I was enabling them and didn't believe in them and didn't want them to make mistakes. So by letting go and watching them step up to the challenge, they actually enjoyed carrying their brother. So then we started taking 30 minute shifts where now I would carry the baby for 30 minutes, every two hours. And we rotated for the entire, what is it? Uh, 1500 miles. Those, and it completely changed the dynamic of the trip and the way I enjoyed it um, in a huge way. Uh, So opportunities like that, you know, in terms of like what I walked away with, I mean, that was one lesson that I saw and it's one chapter in the book, but there was a dozen things like that where I just learned to see my kids differently. I saw them as heroes for me and it was a a kick to my egos nuts, you know, at first, but I'd rather partner with kids that I'm going to be friends with for the rest of my life. Then be the strong, all-knowing dad that's powerful and doesn't make mistakes, even though that's all based on a myth uh, that no one wants to address. So, yeah, just the—I mean, I'm a—I'm a new perspective junkie. I think if if going to therapy, or uh, going on an adventure, or quitting your job, or writing your book, or starting a blog or a vlog or a podcast will give you a new perspective on yourself or the world or the work. I'm like how can you afford not to do that? I think that's one of the the best things in life you can get and this hike gave it to us.
3: Man, that's awesome. And that's that is different perspective like how you how you see. And I did read that in your book. I I read that part about your daughter Carrie and Carrie and your son there and um but the perspective that you have on it is and that'll probably change, like give it another couple of years. And and then that story that you say, you'll have a slightly different perspective based upon like how the kids turn out and like how, how uh, you know, other things in your life. And you're like, yeah, that I thought that was exactly what it was, but it turns out it's maybe a little something different, you know, and and I like the new perspectives too. That's been some of the biggest things for me is, is going through some sort of a, a crucible experience whether that's on the water, you know, you're in bad weather and you don't know if you're going to make it back or you have to make a real crucial decision and maybe you make the wrong decision and it results in some sort of adventure that you really didn't want. And you come back with a different perspective. You're like, Hmm, not doing that again. Or man, I'm glad that whatever, I don't know, but there is a different perspective and you see things differently. And when you go and do something like hiking, And go into a, you know, just to see running water and a toilet. You're like, wow, that's amazingly nice. And my
2: kids, they see the world differently. You know, like one of the things I'm the most proud of is the way that we came to experience strangers. You know, strangers invite us into their home. We hitchhiked as a family. We, We drove in this lady's van. All eight of us were on a bed in the back of her van. I mean, it was like one of those things you'd see on like to catch a kidnapper or something <laughs> like on America's most wanted where they're like, never get into a stranger's van that has a bed and no windows. <laughs> we did that and it saved our ass. And we are friends with this lady to this day, or at least keep in touch online. And my kids experienced that instead of being afraid of strangers, what if people wanna want to help you? They just don't know how, or they don't feel invited or they don't see need. But everyone wants to be valued. Like, where can you learn that? Like, you don't learn it watching the news, you know. Um, so to give my kids that perspective, to give, to give my kids a perspective that they love America and meeting, you know, going through the back roads and woods, and uh, that they can walk two thousand miles. Like, I don't, I don't give a damn if they never hike another day in their life. It, it's not going to phase me. I don't care. My, I don't care if my kids grew up being hikers. I want them to know that they can hike if they want to, uh, if they choose to, but they can choose not to. But when people say, oh, I can't walk or run uh five miles or 10 miles, that's too hard for me. I'm like, Ooh, that's a limit. I mean, maybe it's real, but maybe it's self-imposed. I feel like my kids don't have that limit at mm-hmm. least.
3: Yeah. Interesting. I've, I've, I've through through your book, as I was reading it, I, I, I picked a couple of quotes and just kind of wrote them down here and some of them are, are interesting to, to this conversation we're having right now it says through our own journey, we'd learned an unshakable truth. If we didn't find a way to validate our children's voices, then someday when they found their courage, they would choose to walk away from us too, which is kind of what you're, kind of what you're talking about there. Like, like you validate them and have, have this experience with them to where you, you, you respect them and you kind of understand one another that you're trying your best and you're going to make some mistakes and that, If they can accept that and you can accept that you're going to make those mistakes, then you got a better chance of them not tolerating you for as long as they have to. And then bailing as soon as as soon as that day comes. That's what I hope for my children, too, is like I want them to want to be around me. Like, how do I make decisions on a daily basis to where, you know, they have to be around you for a certain time, but then it gets to a point to where. Do they want to like, would they, would they be here if they didn't have to be, you know? And that do was, they just
2: felt guilty. Yeah.
3: That was kind of an interesting part of your, of your book. Yeah. I liked a lot. And then, then like what we're talking about here is this one, the trail gave us the full spectrum of experiences, beautiful ones and horrible ones. We couldn't pick and choose what we took away. We'd gone out there to experience it all. And that's kind of what you were saying about the journey, like the whole thing to you is like the the, the journey. And to me, a lot of the same, I, I feel a lot of the same way. Is that you take the good and the bad; it's all valuable. The beautiful experiences that you have, those are valuable and you can take away wonderful things from them, but the horrible experiences are also valuable (laughs) and you can take away. That may be where you learn the biggest lessons, right? Like you think you learn more or you and your family learn more from the beautiful ones or the horrible ones? Or does it even matter?
2: It's hard hard to say. Yeah. I don't know if it matters. I do know this. Like when we first started back um, camping uh, in Seattle, you know, Seattle, it rains all the time. And we heard these, this story again and again, and again, of these families that would go um, camping. And then it was always the same story. They're like, we went camping. It was a disaster. It <laughs> rained. Uh, you know, we forgot the food, the fire wouldn't start and the air blow up air mattress, like deflated in the middle of the night. And that was eight years ago and it sucked. We're not doing it again. And I'm like, well, wait a second. It's eight years later and you still remember that weekend. Yeah. Like, is that a failure? If you, if you're still talking about it eight years later, what was the alternative to watch season one of 24, you know, (laughs) and have another fucking or lost or alias or whatever was on back then and have another like weekend. That's just like every single other weekend that you don't remember. Is that a success? So it kind of comes down to redefining success. Like, you know, the hard parts for us were this, was the cold in Georgia in the beginning. It was so miserable and so difficult but yet we're talking about it two years later, all the time. Uh, so the pain is hard, but it does, yeah, it forms us. And, you know, but on the AT, it's it's so um, obvious. You can't control the weather. You know, you you show up and hike every day, but in 161 days, you're going to have bugs some days. You're going to have heat some days. You're going to have cold some days, dry some days, rain some days. All you can control is your attitude. So if you Mm -hmm. get all bent out about, oh, it's rainy today, it's like, well, you're going to have a lot of days where you're pissy because,
3: you know. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. You had another (laughs) quote that I wrote down. We didn't feel pain in the same way anymore. It was more of a constant companion than anything more of a constant companion than something to notice or remark on and that you you kind of wrote that when you were talking about carrying your son and you were you were losing so much weight and having such a hard time but that 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 pain you know it's like it's always around you and this is part of it and you can choose to think about it or dwell on it or choose to keep walking and uh it's kind of what you're talking about there like it's a change of perspective like, even for your kid, for everybody, especially for your kids, like, yep, sore feet is kind of part of it. So either move on or, or, or not. Yeah. And the promise is when you're doing your difficult thing, when
2: you set out to do it, humans are amazing at adaptation. The promise is it will get easier. And that's something that's really hard to believe, I think. But when you, You know, the amazing thing about our story to me is not that we have a higher pain threshold or that we are superhuman as a family. The amazing thing was we started the damn journey and just didn't quit. Because when you look at the other 2000 hikers that finished that year or a thousand, I think, um, a lot of which we hiked with, they all went through the same thing. It all sucked the first day. And the second day, it sucked a little bit less. And then the third day, it sucked a little bit less. And then the fourth day, and then five months in, we're all fucking machines. People are doing 20 miles and not blinking an eye and day one, you're struggling for four, but that's the human condition. And it's like, you know, I think people, they start their run or they quit their job or they start their writing project or their vlog or their blog, whatever. And it sucks, but the next one will suck a little bit less. And to me, it's like, I really want to lean into that hope And I've just seen us go through amazing changes. So as you're saying, you know, in that to me, that's a kind of an ode to change. Like the change will happen. We'll get used to like it says uh what pain was our companion. It hurt the first day, but you get used to it (laughs) to a point where you're like, oh, that's just that's just my legs hurting. Yep, that's been every
3: day. And it's not gonna kill me. Yeah. Funny thing when you say, you know, about the change and all that is there was I came across one little um entry. That was your daughter's uh, journal, and it was like a couple days in, maybe day four or five. And it's like, it's like I hate this. I've hated every day of this. I hate every moment of this. I don't want to. I don't want the AT to change me. And I was like, man, that sounds just like like of course <laughs> yeah. any teenage daughter would would be doing it. But then there's like this this thing of like you're just so attached to your regular life that you don't want this change, but it's happening. And it would happen any, either way. Like if you just stay at home, you're probably going to experience some sort of change. But if you go on this trip, you're going to experience radical change. And she was res- wrestling with, like, I don't want this. I want to be at home with my friends. I want to, I want to like do regular things, not hike in the snow.
2: You know. <laughs> and, and that's a daughter, ironically, that probably wants to through hike the most
3: next time. Really? So there is some interest. That's cool. Um, Well, I don't know how we could end it any better than on this note, but I do want to ask one more question. You have, um, your name's Ben. Your wife is Cammie. Then you have Dove, Eden, Seven, Memory, Philia. Is that right? Did I say that right? We pronounce it Philia, yeah. Philia and Rainier. So what's the, uh, obviously those names carry significance. Can you just quickly just kind of give a little bit of significance and context to why you named your kids, all of those different names.
2: You know, they're all over the place. It's kind of like my tattoos. Like it just kind of was what we felt at the time was the most important to us. And once again, I would say, I guess the, um, the important thing that I see was that, you know, how I said in the beginning, my superpower is to ignore, uh, you know, we didn't name our kids Megan or Luke or Scott uh not because i'm against that but just because we felt like the name had this um other potential to really memorialize and signify something that was important to us at the time so a lot of them are probably um more religious in the beginning um rainier is our favorite mountain that our fi- family has spent a lot of time um around uh that's where we hiked for doing this trail five times that probably helped train us for this trail. And it's one of the most beautiful places in the world to us. Um, but I guess the point was for me that each of those names were the most important things to us. And we knew people would critique um, whatever, you know, but mm-hmm. we were just kind of like, well, fuck it. We, we get to decide and hopefully it doesn't, you know, <laughs> ruin the kid's life. Um, but I think all our kids like their names. Uh, to this day. So that's been kind of a, uh, I don't know, a lesson of our family that I think maybe other people can learn from also is like on an individual level and as a family level, you know, one of the the phrases we say in the book all the time is hike your own hike. <clears throat> you have to hike the pace and the style and the speed that works for you. And on the trail that became very tangible because, uh, you know, 5,000 people hike, I, I heard actually, and this is kind of a funny joke, but someone from Thailand told me that there's like, uh, forgive me on the numbers, but there's 10 million people that live in, um, shoot Thailand. Uh, and there's 10 million ways to make pad Thai. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of a similar thing where there's 5,000 people that start the trail each year. And because those people all come from different nationalities, uh, they come from different stages of life, different income levels. There's 5,000 different ways of doing gear and hiking. Uh, and no one's right. And no one's wrong. You can get it from REI. You can get the shiny stuff from Arc'teryx or Patagonia, or there was, there was kids wearing garbage bags that didn't have rain jackets. And some of those kids kicked ass. They were like going to make it. Um, and they were living their dreams. So who am I to say, Oh, you need a Patagonia, uh, $200 rain jacket. Um, so I don't know, whatever it comes to living your life and hiking. Um, if you try and hike the way you think other people want you to hike either by going faster for months at a time or slower for months at a time or skipping towns or doing this or that, uh, it was a disaster. (laughs) And one of the things we're trying to do is to learn to live into the freedom that, Oh, that's cool. You get to name your kid, like whatever you want. Like, and you get to set your schedule at home and, um, set your, you know, we have a lot of freedom in this country and I don't know. I really want to encourage people to do that. So that's what we do with our kids' names. We named them. Yeah. It was
3: important to us at the time. Yeah. That's cool, man. Well, like I said earlier, man, you're an interesting dude. I'd love to have you back on the podcast another time, uh, just to talk about, I don't know, anything, mindset, perspective, this trip, other trips, how card counting. I mean, there's something tells me that if I talk to you for a little bit longer, I'd probably uncover some other things that that you've done that uh, would be of interest. But uh, for now, we'll stop it here. Tell everybody how they can buy your book, how they can go to your YouTube channel, how they can support you and your family in, in whatever way they like.
2: Yeah. So the book is called 2000 miles together. Um, the story of the largest family to hike the Appalachian trail uh, it's available on Amazon. You can buy it from our merch store, which I'm assuming you have a place where you can put links. Yeah. I'll just, yeah, we'll then you a link to that. That, that helps us out more directly. Um, if cause we literally make three times as much money if we sell it directly than through Amazon, but either way, if people want to check out the book, I'd love that. Um, on YouTube and on Instagram, we are fight for together. F I G H T F O R together. Um, on Instagram, it's all one word. And for there, I would say the most interesting thing people might want to check out would be, we have this hour long documentary about our hike that, you know, it's, it has music and drone shots. And I think it's pretty entertaining. People say they really like it. It gives you a good feel for our hike and, and who we are. And from there, the book is—it's uh, getting a lot of good reviews. I'm very happy with it so far, and people are saying it's an easy read. So,
3: no, it is an uh, easy read. I'm hoping you're going to put an audio book out too, because I—I I, I do a lot of driving, you know, and I like to listen to audio books and I run, and sometimes I listen to the audio books. But I—I—I—I uh, I, I've, I've, I read enough of your book to realize I want to read the entire thing. And there's so many, you know, so many lessons and stories and perspective about parenting in there, and one of the things I like most about your parenting style or or not even your parenting style, but about what you did in the book is you like put in there in the preface, in the preface that you had written a bunch of drafts and you're starting to talk about parenting and, and then you just decided "Ah, that, that is not good. Like, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to just tell the story and people can make of it what they, what they want to. And so it's not like you're not on a soapbox talking about like, what's the best way to parent it's just like this is an experience we had these are some of the things that came out of it take take from it what what you want like
2: we wanted to share the pros and the cons
3: yeah and you did. You did a really good job. I liked it. I enjoyed it. And I, I love the and, videos too. <laughs> and I think the audiobook is coming out in 2 weeks. Okay. Cool, man. Well, I'll I'll definitely check that out. All right. Well, if you uh if, if you like this podcast, you'd love the book. You should definitely check it out and go to the YouTube thing and if you just watch the first two videos, that that will, you'll be hooked. It's it's really good. But Ben, I want to thank you for coming on and spending this time with us and uh, you know, I I, I think what you did is is really cool and um yeah, I know that that your kids are going to benefit from it and, and see the world as a metaphor of this hike, you know, for the rest of their life. They'll be like, oh, this is like when we were hiking through snow. <laughs> yeah. Thank it. you, Tom. Yeah, I man. really enjoyed it. And I would love to come back. All right. We'll do it. OK, thanks. See you.